Amen. If you have been a part of ACAC for a few years or more, you know that I occasionally like to remind you of this fact. One reason we can be confident the Bible is God's infallible revelation is the fact that it is such an honest read. Let me explain what I mean. If the Bible was a publicity piece put out by morally bankrupt con men, if it was the work of horribly deceived and naive fools, well, the honesty would not be found. Because if it was an attempt to advance some false, self-serving narrative, the Bible would be filled with what we now call spin. It would portray God's followers in the best possible light by conveniently ignoring their numerous struggles, their numerous failures, or attempting to justify those things. But if you've read God's Word, you know it doesn't do that. It does just the opposite. It consistently records the inconsistencies and the struggles and the failings of God's followers, often in brutal detail. And the Holy Spirit exposés aren't limited to those failings that played out before witnesses that are a matter of public record. The Spirit's exposés also reveal struggles and failings that were witnessed only by God, things that would otherwise remain unknown to us. And they don't stop there. God's Word often reveals the unchecked thoughts and emotions that give birth to spiritual struggles and failings, things that we can't observe, things like doubt, fear, pride, jealousy, greed, self-pity, depression, bitterness, anger, or lust. Those are things seen only by God and only known by the person entertaining them, though God knows them much better. Now, today I want to consider an example of the Bible's honesty and transparency. We're going to look at what was easily the darkest moment, the darkest hour in the life of an otherwise dynamic prophet of God. His name was Elijah. And I want to begin by reading his anguished cry and request to God in that moment when his soul had finally touched bottom. It's recorded in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, the 19th chapter and the 4th verse. Elijah came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life. I've entitled today's teaching, Remember the 7,000. That'll make sense to you by the time we get to the end. If it doesn't, I will have failed miserably. <laughs> Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, you've called me to do something that I cannot do on my own. And so today I ask for the enabling and the equipping of your Holy Spirit so that I might faithfully preach and teach your eternal truth. 
And Father, your word tells us that we can't grasp that truth on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to open our understanding, to give us spiritual insight. So I pray for all of us that we would receive that equipping so that each of us individually and all of us corporately would really hear what the Spirit wants to say to the church in this never-to-be-repeated moment in time. Father, as always, we pray these things for the honor of Christ, for the welfare of his people, and for the sake of our mission in a broken world. And we thank you in advance because you've told us to ask and you've promised to respond. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we listen for God's voice together today, may the Lord be with you. Elijah's darkest hour was an intensely private moment. Only God witnessed it. And that fact begs the question, well then why did God take that private, painful moment and make it a matter of public record to be read by millions and millions of people through the remainder of human history? After all, that dark moment was the rare exception in Elijah's life. And he had put his life on the line for God and God's kingdom. So it would be easy for us to say, didn't Elijah deserve better than to have his darkest moment, his dirty laundry, hung out in public for everyone to see? Well, obviously, God's frank disclosure did not have its roots in a desire to embarrass his faithful servant. That's not God's style. God doesn't go about embarrassing his people. Elijah's struggle and God's gracious response and the final outcome were disclosed for our benefit in God's effort to forewarn us and to equip us. And while this is not my main point today, I don't want to miss this. The fact that God recorded that private moment for our benefit is a reminder that God's servants forfeit the right to total privacy. God may call on us at any time to share our struggles, if doing so may benefit another person or another believer. There may come the day when God will say to you, you know that thing you would like to keep entirely private? I need you to share it over here because this brother, this sister is going through a similar predicament and hearing your story will help them. So swallow your pride, swallow your embarrassment, embrace your ministry. Now when we dissect the dynamics of Elijah's struggle. It soon becomes obvious why God chose to record it. It has an important thing or important things to say to believers who are living in an increasingly adversarial culture. And I say that because the spiritual progression that birthed Elijah's despair is the same progression that Satan seeks to initiate in every believer, every believer. It begins with something that is spiritually intimidating. 
And that is aimed at producing discouragement and fear. If discouragement and fear are allowed to take up residence and go unchecked, they will eventually produce doubt and even depression. Once depression is on the scene, self-pity usually walks in and opens the door to despair, the feeling that things are hopeless, that they're never going to get any better. And the weight of despair is one that the human soul cannot carry indefinitely. Now, the fact that that deadly progression occurred in the soul of somebody like Elijah reminds us that just as a past meal doesn't make us immune to future hunger, past experiences with God don't make us immune to future doubts. In fact, they often make us targets of future attacks meant to produce doubts. Let me unpack that. Elijah was easily one of the foremost prophets in God's narrative, in God's redemptive history. He was a man of great faith. He was a man of great courage. He was a man of uncompromised devotion. God used him to perform 16 unmistakable, undeniable miracles. His very name speaks to his heart and his character because his name translated means, my God is Yahweh. Now, Elijah's God-given assignment would have paralyzed a lesser man or somebody of lesser faith. Because he was called to speak boldly for God at a time when idolatry in his nation of Israel was being promoted in the highest places and as a result had reached epidemic status. In many ways, Elijah's day was much like our own day. Israel's tragic condition in his day had its roots in their infamous, notorious infatuation with idols. If you've read the history of ancient Israel, you know that they never saw a pagan idol that they didn't like. Every time Israel became familiar with some new idol, some new false bogus god, they just had to have them some of that. And so they moved from idolatry to repentance to idolatry to repentance to idolatry to repentance. That was the history of the nation. But in this case, their infatuation with idols had been exacerbated by these words. I, Ahab, take you, Jezebel, to be my wedded wife. Ahab was called to be the king of God's covenant people, but he foolishly established a life covenant with a woman who worshipped a false idol, a false god known as Baal. And then, knowing that if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, in an effort to please her, Ahab had altars, worship places of Baal, erected all throughout Israel. And then, perhaps in fear for his own domestic well-being, he stood by silently as his queen used her power 
to order the execution of all God's prophets. Now, in response to that blatant evil, God told Elijah to stand before the king and announce God's judgment and the curse that was coming upon the nation. So Elijah stood face to face with an adversary who had called for his death and told him there will be no rain in this land, not even dew in this land, until God tells me to call for it. Now that takes some backbone. Needless to say, that announcement probably moved Elijah to the top of Jezebel's hit list. So he immediately sought refuge east of the Jordan River, where God miraculously provided for him. And from there, he subsequently relocated to the home of a widow. And while he was there, God performed two distinct miracles on that widow's behalf. One, ensuring that she and her son would never have to worry where their next meal was coming. And the second was even more impressive. Elijah raised her son from the dead. Now, when God uses you to raise somebody from the dead, that has a way of encouraging faith. Have you found that in your own life? So with his faith energized... Elijah returned to Israel and challenged 450 prophets of Baal and an additional 400 prophets of another false god, Asherah. He challenged them to a spiritual showdown on Mount Carmel. Here's how it was to play out. They would erect an altar. They would put a sacrificial animal on the altar. And whoever's God could send fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice would be the winner. Sending fire from heaven would be proof of the reality of that party's God. Well, Elijah was a gentleman, so he allowed the priests of Baal to go first. And what a pathetic showing. Scripture tells us they shouted, they prayed to Baal. They danced. They cut themselves in desperation. Nothing. Nada. Squat. Zilch. Silence. No fire. Nothing. And finally, exhausted and bleeding and feeling stupid, they stepped to the side. And it was Elijah's turn. So what did Elijah do? He just prayed. Lord, send the fire. But before he prayed, he had the altar and the sacrifice soaked in water. So there was a veritable moat around the altar. Because Elijah lived by the edict, a God who can't burn wet wood is no good. (laughs) And he was got to show that the God of Israel can burn even wet wood. So he prayed, and the fire fell, and it consumed everything. And at that, the people of Israel fell on their faces. And here's what they shouted. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. 
And with that, Elijah ordered the execution of all those false prophets. And then just as he had prayed for rain, or, and then just as he had prayed for fire, he now prayed for rain. And the rains came. Many don't know that Elijah was also an amateur musician. At that point, he wrote a song. Oh, I've seen fire and I've seen rain. <laughs> but he didn't have it copyrighted. <laughs> so many centuries later, a fella in the United States called James Taylor <laughs> claimed it as his own, but now you know where it really came from. <laughs> Inquiring minds want to know. Obviously, throughout the nation, everybody was relieved. But not everybody. There was one woman who was incensed and who reminded us why we have the saying, hell has no fury like a woman scorned. Men, don't say amen there. <laughs> Unless you have a death wish. Just nod inside and keep it to yourself. <laughs> she swore that before that day was out, Elijah would be dead. And suddenly the prophet who had called down fire from heaven just hours earlier couldn't find a spark of confidence in his heart. The prophet who many days earlier had raised a boy from the dead, couldn't raise his own soul out of the pits of despair. And in fear for his life, he fled for the wilderness. His past experiences with God, all those miracles, all those dynamic manifestations didn't make him immune to future doubts. Instead, as I suggested at the outset, they made him a target for future attacks that were aimed at producing doubts. And here's why. Satan doesn't waste his strongest attacks on men and women who are content to merely dabble in religion to see what they can get out of it. He doesn't waste his strongest attacks on those who would gladly compromise God's work in a misguided effort to be well thought of by an unbelieving culture that has gone off the rails. No, Satan directs his strongest attacks against those with the strongest desire to see God's will accomplished, the people who actually care the people who are actually invested in what God is doing in the world. When I was a new believer, my dad told me something. I've learned it was very true. He said, son, if you're bothering the devil, the devil will bother you. And the day the devil quits bothering you, you need to see why you're no longer bothering him. And I have found that to be true over and over again. Satan directs his strongest attacks at those who desire to see God's will accomplished. And that was Elijah. That was his passion. 
So for that reason, I'd like to suggest the more we care about God's work in the world, the more likely it is that we'll struggle with doubt. The more we care, the more we'll come under attack, and the more we'll come under attack, the more likely it is we may struggle with doubt. It's inevitable. But know this, when you're struggling with doubt, it isn't a sign of evil. It isn't a sin. It doesn't signal compromised convictions or half-hearted commitment. It doesn't mean your love for God has grown cold. And it certainly doesn't mean God can't use you again. Because doubt is not unbelief. There is a difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is the struggle to remain confident when God's work appears to be in jeopardy. And that is a struggle known only by those who follow Jesus and care about God's work in the world. Unbelievers don't struggle with doubt about what God's up to. God's not even on their radar. It's the believing who struggle with doubt. Is God really in this? Am I really pursuing Him? Did I hear Him correctly? His, his work appears to be in jeopardy. People like Elijah battle doubt. So when you battle doubt, you're in good biblical company. Don't let the enemy tell you it means you've jumped ship. No, no, it means you want the ship to stay on its course. I have a theory, and I think Scripture bears it out. I don't believe Jezebel's threat rocked Elijah's soul because he was afraid of death. Elijah knew the life expectancy of prophets in Israel was very short. They couldn't get whole life policies from State Farm or anybody else. Nobody would insure a prophet. He had watched countless prophets and friends die because of Jezebel's edict. And every time he stood before Ahab, he knew his next breath could be his last. I believe her threat rocked his soul because it appeared to threaten all of the recent spiritual gains that had been made in his nation after the showdown on Mount Carmel. But that appearance was wrong. It was based on partial information. You see, Elijah was under the misconception that he was the only uncompromised prophet left. Now, how do I know that? Because twice... When he was hiding out in the cave, God came to him and said, Why are you in this emotional mess? Why are you here? And both times he said, I'm the only one left. The only faithful prophet, the only uncompromised voice. He said that twice. And so to his way of thinking, if the queen succeeded in having him murdered, that would mean there would be no prophetic voice in Israel. And if there were no prophetic voice in Israel, all those gains would suffer a serious setback and idolatry might move right back in. And his beloved nation, 
would yield to Jezebel, and the work of his beloved God would be frustrated. But Elijah was wrong. Even prophets can be wrong. Because after listening graciously, after doing a couple practical things like giving him something to eat and telling him to take a nap, God informed him, son, things aren't as bad as they appeared, and they certainly aren't as bad as you have assumed. Jezebel has not been successful in her efforts to kill all the faithful. Son, there are actually 7,000 faithful voices in this nation who have never bowed their knees at the shrine of Baal. Not seven, not 70, not 700, 7,000. And God went on to say, and I'm not going to allow one of them to be killed. Not a one out of the 7,000. Now, if God's given you a promise like that, State Farm will insure you. (laughs) And with that, Elijah kicked his despair to the curb and listened as God gave him several new assignments, and he pursued those assignments. And he did so even though Jezebel's threat of death still remained. That's why I say his behavior affirms that his doubts weren't ultimately rooted in fear for his life. They were rooted in his concern for God's work. And one of the assignments God gave him was to prepare his successor, Elisha. And it's interesting because, and and this isn't part of the main, but I love it, Elisha, when he ultimately took Elijah's place, prayed for a double portion of his predecessor's spirit. Elijah worked 16 specific miracles. Do you know how many Elisha would work? 32. It's in the book. Now let me share what Elijah's experience has to say to you and to me and why I feel God put this message on my heart early in my sabbatical month and just brought it back to me almost daily. If you care deeply about God's work in our nation, It's becoming easier and easier to identify with and maybe even join Elijah in his despair. Many of our neighbors have bowed their knees to the bales of our age, to the big three idols of the United States, materialism, individualism, and racism. Attacks against our faith are becoming increasingly overt, strident, mean-spirited, and confident. Almost weekly, I read people suggesting that we're moving toward the death of Christianity in the United States, that we're on our way to becoming Europe. 
But worse than that are the new accounts we hear weekly. Accounts of people who profess to be followers of Jesus, and indeed may be, who have gotten into the weeds and dishonored the name of Christ. We hear about sexual abuse and pedophilia that's covered up. Unbelievable that people do this stuff, but it happens. We read about malpractice by pastors. We read about cult-like leadership. We read about people compromising the faith because of their love of political power. We read about lavish lifestyles, the pursuit of celebrity. Even more disheartening are the increasing number of voices, supposedly from within the church, believers calling out other believers with scathing judgments and sweeping accusations, calling for a new progressive Christianity that is not a progressive faith, but a return to the compromises of past eras in this nation's history. They didn't work then, and they won't work in the future. They constitute not a fresh move of God, but an absolute surrender to the forces of corrupt culture. I've read things like, well, there were words left out of the Bible, so the church is wrong on this and this and this because there were words left out. As if the God of all creation who holds the universe together by the mere word of his power couldn't ensure that the right narrative got to us. As if people who have followed Jesus for 2,000 plus years had it all wrong until a few hyper-enlightened folks in the United States of America in the early 21st century saw what believers over 2,000 years failed to see. See, if you believe that, I've got swampland in South Jersey. I'll make you a good deal. People say, oh, but, but the discoveries of science... That's why we now see Scripture differently. No, no, no. Remember this. Scripture is given by the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is God-breathed. And it is the Spirit of God that enables men and women to rightly interpret His Word. And people 2,000 years ago knew just as much of the Spirit of God as we do today. People 1,000 years ago had just as much of the Spirit of God as we do today. People 200 years ago had just as much of the Spirit as we do today. They didn't always listen to the Spirit, but they had just as much of the Spirit. So when you say to me, well, now we know because of this, this, this. No, I want to talk. The Spirit gave the Word. The Spirit interprets the Word. Are you suggesting that the Holy Spirit lied to the church for 2,000 years and now He's giving full disclosure? Come on. I'm saying this to remind you, giving these developments, as a believer, you could easily entertain the discouragement that opens the door to despair. But I believe God wanted me to simply tell you this weekend, remember the 7,000. Remember there are still many, many, many Jesus followers who have not bowed their knees to the idols of this age. And they don't intend to do so anytime. See, but they don't broadcast their faithfulness on social media. The critics are out there, 
The snarky folks are out there. But God's spirit-filled people walk in self-effacing humility. Their desire is for the glory of God. They're not out promoting their faithfulness. Look at what I did today. They don't all have the ability to write articles for national publications. They don't all have their own blogs and followers. They aren't starting movements. They aren't holding rallies. They don't virtue signal. They don't offer outrage as a substitute for holiness. They don't live in perpetual victimhood, looking for the next person to be ticked off at. They look for the next person they can love with the love of God. They just quietly go about loving God, loving their family, loving their neighbors, sharing the gospel as best they can, serving their community, serving their local congregation, serving the world, convinced that that's what Jesus would want them to do. And God knows who they are. They are his faithful remnants. So in the midst of what appears to be the triumph of evil in our culture. I would suggest this is a parting lesson from Elijah's darkest hour. Don't despair because of God's enemies. Be encouraged because of his followers. Amen. His enemies say, you're a bunch of haters. You're a bunch of phobes. You're, yeah, 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 yeah. Get with your fellow believers. That's why growth groups, corporate worship, transparency is so important. Get with your fellow believers and be reminded not everybody has bowed the knee. Not everybody is buying into the narrative of evil. Not everybody is embracing the illogical, the irrational, and the demonic for the holy and the perfect rational truth of God. Remember the 7,000 and purpose in your heart that you're going to be one of them. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, all about us, we see ample opportunity for discouragement. But all about us, if we're discerning and watching, we see ample opportunity to be encouraged. As we look about us in this room today, we're reminded not every knee has bowed. Lord, help us to ignore the threats of the queen and remember the 7,000. Remember the 7,000 and be among them and know that nothing that will happen in the days ahead can keep us from our appointed destiny in Christ. You're building your church. You will continue to build your church. And we are blessed to be part of it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.